This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is January 20th, 2022, and this is episode 273. I'm Scott Lunderbone. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Welcome back, back. after, yeah, a little break, a baby who came early, holidays, a booster shot earlier today, really rough night last night, <laughs> really wondering why I'm here. <laughs> but it's to bring my soothing dulcet tones to your ears, I guess. <laughs> You did some good episodes with Stuart there. Thanks, Stuart, for stepping up, pinch pitch hitting. Yes, pinch hitting. big thanks to, to Stuart for uh, filling in for the time you weren't able to make on the pod. On today's show, we can finally do our look back at the predictions we made way back at the start of 2021. And to continue the trend, just make some more wild ones for 2022, even though this year already feels like chaos continued. The 2020 trilogy is ongoing. (laughs) Thanks to everyone who continues to support this show. Your Patreon dollars really do help. They help us fund all of the costs that this show incurs and help us think about how we can continue to build it. And that's one thing I'm eager to do this year. So please join them at patreon.com slash politicoast and consider helping us build the future of Leg and Boot Media. But let's get back to where we left it, the greatest BC premier bracket. Thanks for holding it off. This is my vanity project, which is entirely just about me wanting to figure out who the first two dozen premiers of the nonpartisan era were, and if any of them were redeemable human beings, the answer being, eh. Uh, But we're in the more modern era right now. We met the last premiers we hadn't discussed just before the break. Dave Barrett versus Dan Miller, both NDP premiers, one who served for a long time and the other for a good time. Were, uh, were the 90s not actors really. for No, the Dan Miller's time was not a good time for him or the party. So one had a long, a short, good time. Huck it. Dave Barrett led for three years. Dan Miller led for six months. Dave Barrett got 33 votes. Dan Miller got one. One vote. We have a, a Dan Miller stand in the audience. I was not expecting that. That or someone really hates Dave Barrett. Maybe. Dave Barrett advances. That's no surprise. This week, we come back to the more modern NDP. We have the 90s NDP giant, Mike Harcourt, who took the party into government for the first time since Dave Barrett. Only the second time the party won government versus John Horgan, the current premier. We've met them both, and many of you will know them both well, so I won't talk too much about them. Harcourt had a controversial era. He left office in a bit of scandal, but I think that has largely been reduced in time, maybe just because Glenn Clark's scandals were worse, and Gordon Campbell's and Christy Clark's. We have a lot of scandals in this province. Harcourt was still controversial among the left. He was seen as selling out the party a bit, but he also managed a like moderate pre- government. Isn't being accused of selling out the party the uh, NDP leader rite of passage? 
Yeah, the same is said about John Horgan quite frequently as well. So, have your vote. I know some people don't think we should have the current premier in. He's there, though. Maybe he won't survive this round, or maybe he'll lose to Dave Barrett in the next round. Go vote at Politico's Pod on Twitter. I just also want to note that Horgan posted a few days ago that his radiation treatments are complete. He did 35, and it sounds like things are going well. He said, they had the phasers on stun, and my treatment is complete. Thanks to the team at BC Cancer. I really think they should have put the phasers on kill to get rid of the cancer, but... Yeah, you would think the medical phaser would be on something a little more than stun. Yeah. Anyway, good to hear he's doing better. Indeed. Go vote in the bracket. Let's jump to our recap of predictions from 2021. It was a hell of a year. What? Where do you want to start, Scott? Should we start with how we thought the election that was obviously going to happen happened? Sure. So, yeah, last year kind of started with the everybody talking about the inevitable election. Most people thought it was going to be in the spring. I think if you go back and listen, I probably thought it was going to be a little later in the year than that. But I've not actually gone back and re-listened to that episode. But yeah, ended up happening late summer, early fall. So we both had that on our prediction list that would happen. I was a little off in terms of where I thought it would go. I had O'Toole with a plurality, which, well, for the first couple weeks of the election, actually looked pretty plausible, but did not end up that way. I was at the PPC as uh, not really having their act together and running less than 10 candidates. Disappointing to be wrong there. Yeah, that I think that was a bigger miss than the O'Toole, the Conservatives' performance. The PPC were wildly strong. If we remember, it was the Greens that collapsed. Neither of us predicted that. I did call Trudeau getting a minority. I don't think I was predicting the almost identical result. I don't think anyone did. But hey, I'll take a win. On COVID, I didn't make any specific predictions. You had said that vaccine distribution would fall behind schedule and we wouldn't have everyone vaccinated by the end of 2021. The latter half of that is definitely true because... Not not uh, why I thought it would be the case, but... <laughs> Anti-vaxxers. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm happy. I'm happy to be wrong on the first part, a little less happy to be right on the second half there. Considering what a, a good job we did over the summer, I think it's it almost feels a little nuts to think back to what the, the situation was in January of 2021, where it did not seem like we were going to be doing that well on the vaccine procurement get, and actually getting them into people's arms. Turns out the, the federal government was actually able to do a... Uh, better job than I think a lot of people were expecting in terms of procuring vaccines. And overall, in the past year, past two years, I think if you would have bet on under or overperforming on COVID, the, the safe money would have been on underperforming, but it turned out not to be the case here. I'll give you partial credit on, I think, the rollout of vaccines to under 12s to kids is behind schedule, is behind where I'd hope to see it. I don't think either of us were thinking children's vaccines were coming that quickly, but it's good to see them. I don't blame that on the federal government. I blame that primarily on the provinces because there's a slight difference in how they've all rolled it out. And I, it still boggles my mind we haven't done massive school-wide injection campaigns. Like We have the vaccines in pharmacies right now. We could have them in schools, and that's where the kids are. 
But what was it? There's the Alberta MLA who was saying today, if we did that, we'd risk stigmatizing some children. Just the stupidest shit. Yeah, and I can't recall if I'd ever I'd had Ratsy vaccinated at school or not. It's definitely something that places do, and it makes a lot of sense because that is where all the kids are going to be. Yeah, nice central location. Yeah. Like it, it makes perfect sense to to run it through the school system. On provincial politics, you called that there would be a cabinet shuffle federally. I said there wouldn't be one provincially. I think we both were right on those accounts. I can't remember exactly. I'm pretty sure there was a cabinet shuffle early 2021 federally. There, there was, because uh, Navdi Bain stepped down. Yes. Provincially, we'd expected the BC Liberal leadership race to have concluded by now. When we did our predictions last year, we were in that weird time where Andrew Wilkinson had stepped down, but hadn't actually stepped down. At that point, we didn't know that his announcement that he was resigning hadn't formally been given to the party or hadn't for whatever reason that the paperwork hadn't finally made it to the the party because they'd apparently quietly asked him to hold off for a little bit because the liberal constitution has a one year maximum time before a permanent leader has to be in place so yeah we both expected that the liberals would have a permanent leader at the time uh, i'd predict Wilkinson's Wilkinson's resignation that wasn't a real resignation really um, messed with our predictions. Messed with our predictions, but it also teased the fun that would be Annamie Paul's resignation that wasn't a resignation until she was resigned. But that was a very different set of circumstances. Yeah, uh, at least in Wilkinson's case, him and the party were talking Amicable. to each other and working in concert, unlike everything with the Green Party. But yeah. I had predicted that Ellis Ross would win the leadership race, which at the time seemed a very kind of outside prediction. I'm actually feeling pretty good about that one now. And when we get to our 2022 predictions, I'm uh, going to make the same prediction again. But yeah, feeling fairly good about it. We'll see in a, what I think, 17 days from now, if that's actually going to be the case. But he's definitely performed better than I think most people were expecting this time last year. I thought Todd Stone would win, and meanwhile, he has not even entered the race. I think I've made this kind of prediction a few times, where I predict someone to win it who doesn't enter the thing. But I did correctly predict that James Moore, federal former federal conservative MP, would not enter, and he didn't, so partial mark for that. Provincially, while we're talking about it, I also argued that there would be some sort of major drug decriminalization pilot, either the mayor's request or police act reforms. We're still waiting to hear back from Health Canada whether Vancouver will be a decriminalized city. In the meantime, the province of BC has also made a similar request, but we've not seen Health Canada respond to that, and the Police Act reforms are still under consideration. So I don't really get points for that, I guess. Also, we still have daylight savings times. I was hoping that would finally go away. I still hope it'll go away. I have two kids now, and this fucking bullshit. It should go away. Or that is, we should stay on daylight savings times because it is so fucking dark all the time in the evening, afternoon. I get my kid home from daycare at four and it's already dark. I'm like, give me a little bit of sun in the afternoon. I don't care what the eggheads say. <laughs> you made some global politics predictions as well. Yeah, I'd made kind of an outside guess that there would be another Scottish referendum. They not even happen at all. Yeah, it's not really been talked about in a while. Yeah, so my thinking Weirdly. at the time was that Brexit was going through. Scotland was never uh, big on leaving the EU. 
there'd be increased tensions between Scotland and the Johnson government. And just all of that would lead up to another. And I think the SNP, the SNP had done, I want to say when they're, they, they were making some noises at the time, I think, about wanting greater autonomy, which they're anyway. Yeah, not anything that even happened at all on that. So a uh, complete swing and a miss there. And I'd also guess that Trump or an immediate family member of his would be indicted. Uh, did not happen, although I did see some reported in the last couple days that there was an open fraud investigation around Trump and misleading property assessments of his or something. So may still happen, but we're, it didn't make the cut for last year. Yeah, I'm just looking. There is a Wikipedia article on proposed second Scottish independence referendum, which says that in January 2021, the SNP were campaigning that if they won or pro-independence parties won a majority in the 2021 Scottish parliamentary elections, which the SNP won 64 seats out of 129, so they're a seat shy of a majority, they would try to pass a bill to allow a second referendum to take place without a Section 30 order, which is the like UK permission. Uh, this is controversial. The Scottish Conservatives say they would boycott a referendum. They tried to bring a court case about this, but it was dismissed as, quote, hypothetical, academic, and premature. So it's just floating around. And yeah, and now Boris Johnson is going down the path of Jason Kenney and trying to self-immolate his political leadership. So UK politics is still fun. Those were our predictions from last year. I think we also obviously didn't make any predictions about how the climate would go because that ended up being a massive story here in BC, especially this past year, with just the scale and frequency of climate disasters that occurred. People have predicted those kind of things happening. I don't think anyone predicted all of them would happen in a year, though. No, record rainfall and record heat, I think, was, yeah, not necessarily predicted. One of them, maybe, but both were not predicted. Let's look ahead to 2022. Let's start with the BC Liberal leadership race. Like you said, it's coming up soon. You mentioned Elis Ross. Yeah, I'm going to stick with my prediction from last year that Ellis Ross is going to become leader of the BC Liberal Party. We don't have a huge amount of polling at the moment. From what I've heard is that Falcon is in the lead, but likely low to mid-30s, which probably means he doesn't get enough second and third ballot support to actually win the thing. Yeah, I think there's a good chance that Ellis Ross, who seems to be the the current second position person in the race, uh, ends up leapfrogging him by the uh, end of all the runoff ballots. I'll take the easy bet on here, the safer bet, and go with Kevin Falcon. I don't know if Ellis Ross can pick up as many second choices. His campaign has been a little bit more not controversial, but more like red meat to the skewing base. Skewing towards the, yeah, going towards the populist side. And I don't know how much appetite there is for that in the BC Liberals beyond, but we'll see. On the other side of the aisle, in the NDP, I think we could see John Horgan announce a plan to retire this year. Maybe he's not, maybe he's still premier for another year. I could see that. Uh, if yeah. he's going to announce an exit strategy, it'll probably be this year or early next at the latest. But. Yeah, it'd be a good time just with where the cycles line up. 
he's been having some health issues, and I, I could see him wanting to step back from that. So yeah, that that seems uh, fairly plausible on his part as a plan to step down. If he does so, that puts probably people like Ravi Kellone and David Eby as early frontrunners. Yeah, definitely the safe bet there, but no disagreement. My BC NDP prediction is a little different that I think at some point in this year, they're going to pull below 35, which is their previous low point in the poll since uh, forming government. I expect that the COVID shine is going to wear off. They will have been in power long enough that kind of the the things that wear governments down are going to start to take their toll. There's probably going to be an, an unpopular decision they make somewhere in the next year or so, just because that tends to be the way the things governments do at this stage in things. I think the shine is going to wear off them. And where uh, where does the support go though? Where do the votes park? Do they park with Alice Ross or Kevin Falcon led BC Liberals, or do they park with the Sonia Personnel Greens, or do they split undecided? The, you'll split? have an uptake in undecided. I think you're going to have uh, yeah, definitely a section of them park with the Greens. I think as well as uh, you could see the yeah, you might see. I should say some of the people that went with the NDP in the last election start to migrate back to the Liberals a bit, but it's hard to say on that, but I think it's, if they do fall in the polls, it's likely to go all over the place rather than coalesce behind a single party. Who knows, maybe maybe Val Litwin actually wins and the uh, the new OS just galvanizes the province. I really worry he's like trying to install Windows ME on the... <laughs> it was a good interview, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought it was a a good discussion. Let's talk about COVID. I don't have any specific predictions. I've given up trying to figure out where this goes. Where are you? Where do you see the pandemic going? Yeah, this might be a bit of a fool's error in trying to make a COVID prediction after, well, everything that's happened so far. But I think by the end of 2022, we'll more or less be back to uh, quote-unquote normal, basically not having kind of significant restrictions in BC, you might have you know increased mass usage compared to 2019 or whatever, but uh, kind of broad public health orders that are impacting people's day to day lives won't be in place. Uh, we do know there is going to be an election over in Ontario. There's a series of polls out this week that will tell you any story you want to listen to. I don't want Doug Ford to win, so I want it to just be a minority government which will be hilarious to try to watch itself try to arrange. So that's my prediction, is a hung parliament in Ontario. I think Doug Ford gets reelected. Maybe I should take the even safer bet and say Andrea Horvath does not win, because there's a long track record of that. But yeah, I think Ford is going to squeak out a win. His Poland's being oddly resilient, and Canadians tend not to ditch a government after a single term. So between those two, I, I think Ford probably holds on. Federally, I expect Aaron O'Toole will not be a conservative leader by the time the year is out. And that contingent on that happening, the Conservative Party is going to set out a stupidly long leadership race of six months or more. And they will have learned absolutely nothing from the last two races on how long or 
how long they should be in all the problems with Dolan for a nearly a year or more. I will take the opposite bet here again and say that he's able to hold on. I think that's where he's been dedicating all of his energy and he'll get through this year at least and we'll see where it goes from there. Similarly, I think Jason Kenny will also hold on much to the detriment of his own party. But I think if there's one thing Jason Kenny understands, it's how to hold on to the power conservatives have or at least hold on to power within conservative circles. He might not be able to hold on to his province or lead or run a government, but he will hold on to his office, even if it takes the UCP into the dustbin of history. I think I agree with that. And just as an aside, did you see the wild stuff about their justice minister getting a distracted driving ticket and then calling the Edmonton police to dispute it. Oh, you mean the former justice minister? Yeah, just fun times. But their former justice minister alleges it was racial profiling because he was black. So now it does happen in Alberta. What a funny province. The only other guess I'm going to have is that we're just going to be stuck with switching our clocks forever. I have given up hope on that, and I hope I am wrong. I hope you're wrong too, but I fear you're probably not. It's midterms here in the U.S., so I'm going to say the GOP does what everyone's expecting they will do and regain the House and Senate. Uh, Sigh. Yeah. I don't think anyone's I have no clue. I don't. I'm just like trying to not watch American politics because it's depressing. (laughs) That is probably a good call. Speaking of depressing, my, one of my other predictions is that there will be a major cyber attack in Canada this year. I hope I'm wrong on that, but with the way everything's going internationally, I would not bet money against it. Can I tease that out a little? Are you thinking something at one of the levels of government or even against banks or private business? Or I, just... I, would, I would say either a government or a major corporation. All right specificity yeah. in there yeah some i don't know like the corner store having a ransomware attack I, I don't think raises to the level of that and the only other prediction i'm going to make is that the s&p 500 closes up this year from where it closes at the end of 2021 is that the historically safe prediction uh, i believe about 80 percent of the time that will be correct now okay. we're also pretty much close to the historic high of the market so <sighs> A little hard to say, but and there's some indications of some rocky waters ahead, but yeah, just historically, it's uh, it's the safe bet on that one. We look forward to chalking up our W's and L's in 12 months. Let's pivot and move into our roundup segment, catching up. It's been a few weeks since I've been on. Let's rant about a few things and then talk about some more relevant stories. Let's just start with COVID because that's all that's ever in the news. And it's just been a really weird few weeks since our I the last episode I was on just before Christmas because Omicron has gone through the BCCDC and PHO have changed guidance a number of times leading to confusion to the point where the BCCDC had to apologize for creating confusion. No one knows how much they have to isolate anymore. You can't get tests anymore, but you can get your booster very easily as I did this morning. So this has gone bad, I feel. 
other than the boosters. Yeah, the, the boosters are good. Although, even so, when we now, yeah, when we were talking for the holiday break, the boosters were not in the wing category for BC at all. There was a lot of confusion. It looked like they were going to be dragging it out. I ended up getting mine last uh, Sunday, which I'm happy for to have that uh, over and done with, even if the, the side effects have me feeling not great the next day. I had my weed warm. I ended up getting the uh, booster the Sunday before last, which I'm happy to have out of the way, even if the uh, the side effects did knock me back a bit for uh, the following day. But yeah, when we'd left off at the end of last year, the government was not, look- not sure when boosters were going to be widely available. They ended up scaling up pretty quickly, but they were talking six to eight months, which in theory would have put me as late as uh, March for when I would have been scheduled to get mine. Good on them for tightening that up and stepping things up, but unfortunately they haven't exactly shown the same proficiency with everything else they're doing. And that in particular is a little odd because you would think if anything... Two years of doing this would make them better, not worse at communicating to the public about it. Yeah, the communications is the really weird thing. I can understand like the decisions made around testing because with how quickly Omicron spreads, PCR testing is just not as valuable. But on that front, then where are the rapid tests in this province? Because we've figured out that even though they're not perfect, there is still a value to them. They are being rolled out in some isolated settings like for i think students who have symptoms in classrooms and teachers and that kind of thing don't quote me exactly on that but yeah and they're distributing the tests and such you used to be able to get pcr tests but even that's not uh particularly great i when i was wanting to see a lot more widespread use of boosters and uh somewhat mocking the government on their inability to open the the boxes of the rapid test they'd received what i'd wanted to see in that case was the rapid test complementing the pcr test and not more or less serving as a replacement for it like it is now just the uh, the pcr testing system just got overwhelmed because it wasn't uh built out to handle more than twenty thousand tests a day and testing becomes a real issue because these isolation guidelines that have been changing by the day seemingly are dependent on testing. They say, who needs to self-isolate? I'm looking at the BCCDC page right now. There's three categories. You tested positive for COVID, it's testing's not recommended, but you have symptoms, or you traveled outside of Canada. And so in the first two, most people are not going to be recommended testing. So you're just, I have a cough and a fever okay, COVID testing was not recommended, but I have symptoms. How long do I self-isolate? And now it's just there's no set time for self-isolation. Instead, until symptoms improve, you no longer have a a fever, and then you're just well enough to go back to work. So you might, you probably have COVID. You might still be infectious. Just get back to work is now the guidelines. And if you test positive, it depends on if you're vaccinated or not. If you're not vaccinated, isolate for 10 days, unless you're under 18, and then it's only five days and until your symptoms improve. If you're fully vaccinated, isolate for five days, and then if your symptoms are gone, just wear a mask when you're in public. And masks are not otherwise required. So, not great. It's overly complicated, and 
a lot of it seems very loopholey, like very few people will be self-isolating. It's just we've given up. And it's this isn't just on BC, right? This is a fairly national, I think US and UK have gotten to the same point. It's not global. There are still a lot of countries, particularly in East Asia, where they're still taking this very seriously. But here, it seems we've just swung to the, you know what, it's spreading, it's gonna spread. Let's just hope it doesn't overwhelm the hospitals by nagging people to stay home when they're sick. You have your five sick days, you'll probably use them up very quickly. <laughs> here we are. It's, it, it's a tough one because Omicron really is, in many ways, just a different virus than COVID Classic or even the other variants. And during the height of the restrictions here, we, I don't know, maybe not what, one point off the RT value on that, which was enough to keep it, keep a, a virus with an R of what, 1.5 to 2.4, something more or less under control. I think those were roughly the, the range of estimates on what uh, COVID generally is. But if we're looking at something in the f four to eight range, I, I don't know what the latest uh, estimates are for Omicron. It's, I, I think, a pretty big question of whether or not, even if we go back to where we were, say, in 2020, if that kind of knocking one point off the RT could actually have that big a deal. And <sighs> we obviously don't want COVID to spread, but it may be the case where keeping it contained is going to be pretty hard to do with the the level of restrictions any government is willing to impose even if even the level of restrictions they were willing to impose at an earlier point in the pandemic any canadian government or quote-unquote western it comes down again to what are the goals of our provincial health officers covid strategy good question i've seen it phrased around protecting hospital capacity healthcare capacity which is struggling right now and preserving like some semblance of normalcy. Like we don't have the exact specifics and I don't think it is fully specified out and it changes based on the timing and what the political appetite is, I suspect. I'm just hypothesizing here. But at a certain point, we have to look and all right, Omicron isn't as deadly, but if you have it spread through the entire population, even if it's significantly less deadly, you could have a lot more people die just because of that problem. But even without that, the big problem seems to be that it's making everyone sick at once and that makes our society unable to function. Like emergency departments are at half staff. Ambulances are at half staff or less and are not responding to calls effectively. These are problems because people are at home or sick and that's not even getting into just when that's like the top line collapse and then there's just yeah, there, there's, various grocery stores are cutting uh, capacity because too many people are sick all at once. Yeah, there, there are certain things you cannot do remotely and there's really no way around it. I think that's part of the reason the Ferris Public Health Departments have been nudging the isolation recommendations down is just because the toll on the basic logistics of society is getting to the point where it's starting to become unmanageable. And this is the point where we hit the question of kind of what is the cost of the restrictions. And it's unlike where we were 
in 2020, the the cost versus benefit positions are just a lot different, and it's not a a cost that can necessarily be easily counteracted by just big deficit spending out of the federal government. So you either have to let her rip or you have to severely lock things down to really keep this curve much more flattened than it is. I'm going to be curious to watch as some cases have been reported in Japan and in China to see how they handle it. South Korea, I don't think, has seen it yet somehow, but I haven't checked in the last few days. We lose sight of these international comparisons. We're so used to just comparing ourselves to you know, other provinces, sometimes to America, sometimes to Britain, but it's a very big world and there's a lot of different strategies being employed and some seem to work and some seem to work for others, but I, I all of it just needs to be communicated better at very least. I agree. There, there's really no excuse about how the government seems to be continually falling down on this and there was a big uh, flare-up of that miscommunication around the 18th when the previous set of restrictions were going were set to expire, and then the government quietly put out a, like, a short ex- an extension on that for the the following day. the The new regime was announced, and it's just, it just was an absolute mess that was an entirely unforced error on the government's part, and there there really is no excuse for why. They couldn't have scheduled that to be a couple days earlier or done at least a proper announcement of a, okay, we're extending this X number of days until there rather than this kind of like quiet updates of the restrictions to extend them to bridge the gap. It leaves you wondering what's going on in the Department of Health and BCCDC and PHO. One day we'll find out. One well, day, probably not through access to information. That's getting <laughs> frustrating. But no, well, yeah. Hopefully, we, we do uh, an inquiry on the pandemic. Yes. Why don't we pivot to the opposition, who should be holding the government to account? But they are vigorously agreeing with one another. Possibly, I don't know. Actually, I didn't watch it, but you watched the latest BC Liberal leadership debate. How'd it go? Let's just say it has not uh, changed my mind that these. Uh, very long leadership races are a bad idea. I don't know. There are some jabs back and forth, particularly between um, Lee and Kevin Falcon over some issues around membership signups and whether or not there's any funny business there. Listeners can go back to last week's episode where Stuart and I discussed that. Overall, it's. I don't think any of these debates have actually been all that inciting and or elucidating i think part of the problem is everybody seems to know the bc liberals need to reform or at least almost all of them actually can't think of how much ross has talked about that but the relatively speaking the, the general consensus position is yeah, the party needs to reform and win back the trust of BC and start talking about the issues that are affecting Metro Vancouver and the the seats that they were unable to hold on to last time or the time before that. And there doesn't seem to be much discussion beyond identifying that of actually how you go about it. And that's 
been the big disappointment so far. Identifying the problem is always easy. Finding solutions and proposing good solutions is where it gets tough. On the membership controversy in the BC Liberals, it's, I just want to say that it's so funny to watch that it's everyone is complaining except Kevin Falcon, which you all, he almost just needs to say, yeah, I have concerns too, just so he doesn't look like the one who's obviously cheating. No, he probably isn't, but it looks that way. I'm not trying to say he's done anything nefarious, but when everyone's, yeah, this is a corrupt process, and then the one guy's like, yeah, it's fine. It's sketch. Oh, but yeah. Yeah, and yeah, th this is, I think, one of the ways the, the ranked ballots may actually work against the... Uh, well, it was not the membership thing, but the bit about putting forward some new ideas, because everyone's in incentive is to try and be as congenial as possible to get those uh, second and third choice votes, which, yeah, makes a lot of sense and, and normally is a good thing. But I, I think it has manifested in the case of that nobody's really going out and proposing anything significant or really a, a new direction in a big way. that, And... That is in large part because I don't think anybody wants to be out there by themselves on a policy front where there, there may not be consensus on that. So you've generally gotten, I don't know, like the, the standard things BC liberals say, but you, you haven't really built that new stuff because nobody actually wants to stake out a position and be away from everybody else and draw too sharp a contrast lest that prevents those second, third choice voters from coming along. Yeah, but it doesn't like it's a it it's an understandable strategy, but it's a bad strategy for every contestant to run for everyone else's second and third choice votes. Like you do need some first place votes, right? You don't necessarily need the most, but you need to at some point be ahead of the other guys or else you're always going to be behind. If all you're doing is just trying to be Stan Sipos, Val Litwin, Gavin Du even Michael Lee and Katie Merrifield to some level need to do something to make themselves stand out. Like otherwise, why are they there other than to try to bring together a consensus, but maybe that consensus yeah, and goes around between them. Loon at least has some, I get stage presence that some of those others are, are lacking and that may at least help separate him out from there. But yeah, it's like, I have a hard time figuring out who the Michael Lee voter is and and what differentiates the Michael Lee voter from, I guess, the Gavin Du voter. I, I, it, it, it all feels very undefined on that. At least Gavin at least has the uh, a value proposition around being the youngest candidate, the, you know, has a new family, all that stuff. Like, those things he has at least going for him, but, but yeah, particularly Sipos, Merrifield, and... Lee, there, there doesn't really seem to be that thing that helps them stand out and, and get ahead on that. Which incidentally, I'd bet those three are probably going to be the three that uh, placed at the bottom of the first ballot, would be my guess. Particularly, see, but I think the big question with him is, does he clear 1% or not? Maybe he's got a secret strategy. We don't know, but... Let's leave it there, and let's talk about secret strategies. Russia seems to have one, or not. Maybe it's quite apparent. Ukraine, saber-rattling, 
I'll let you lead in. <sighs> yeah, so this has been the big event that has, uh, I think, dominated the headlines and attention. So Russia has positioned a large number of troops on its border with Ukraine, pretty clearly signaling an intent to invade Ukraine. This is primarily appears to be motivated by an attempt to keep Ukraine out of the NATO EU sphere and to try and force it back into more of a Russia aligned position. There's been ongoing talks between Russia, NATO, the US, and I think just US Russia talks as well. And that has, of course, led to the question of, well, what's Canada's role, position, etc.? How does it participate in maintaining international stability and security? Uh, so currently we have troops in country there training the Ukrainian military, the military that is in fact dealing with or has been dealing with fighting in its eastern regions related to Russian bat separatist groups. The But of course that raises the question of what happens if Russia does invade and so far the indication from the government is that they're going to continue the training mission they're preparing significant sanctions which uh, hasn't exactly been that effective in the past so in 2014 after Russia invaded Crimea and it's it most all right the US the EU NATO leveled some pretty significant sanctions on Russia which has done quite a bit to extract an economic toll on them, but has been largely ineffective at getting Russia to change its uh, geopolitical tact and avoid further aggression with its neighbors there. And additionally, we're looking at providing additional resources and material support to Ukraine. The Globe and Mail is reporting that measures under consideration by the cabinet include uh, provision of small arms, night vision goggles, helmets, armored vests, and military radios, as well as considerations of providing intelligence and cybersecurity advice to Ukraine. So I don't want to spend too long on this because there's a few other stories we want to get to before we run out of time, but it's a mess. I'm going to put in the show notes a link to... Uh, Substack essay. It's quite a long one by historian Adam Tooze. It was posted in our Slack. It's really interesting. It gives a lot of good background. I think it's fair. I, I, not, I don't know if anything's unbiased, whatever. I've not it's read it. It's interesting, right? Gen yeah, I, yeah. I've, I'm aware. I skimmed it and it's interesting. I don't think it tries to take a like pro-Russia stance and it doesn't try to take a pro-NATO stance. It tries to just explore what are the impetuses behind each side in the standoff. My big concern is just the like increasing tension and hostilities and Canada is clearly taking a side in this and I would far rather see us as the diplomat peace broker, the one trying to defuse things and not throw weapons and further escalate things in this. 
I get we're part of NATO, but Ukraine isn't. And in the past, NATO has said it wouldn't expand further east. But here we're just trying to like there's never a test Russia, so there's never a commitment no. that would prohibit but NATO, NATO from doing that. Pushing east definitely pisses Russia off, and so Russia is also rationally, understandably pissed. That doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but it's just complicated. And I think it's very easy to paint Russia as this, and Putin especially, as this like irrational, angry villain. But even countries that we view as bad on human rights and a number of things can be understood to still be acting rationally within their own framework. Oh, yeah. I, I think I, that is happening here. I, I definitely think Putin's is generally a rational actor on this sort of thing. The trouble is he has goals that are very much against the interest of us and our allies on this. And I, I, I will take a little bit of uh, issue with the framing of NATO pushing east. The countries that have joined NATO since the end of the Cold War very much wanted to be part of NATO, and they initiated the the joining process. And the the long history of Russia bullying its neighbors is something that has definitely played a part of it. And you can entirely understand why, say, Latvia, Estonia, and uh, Lithuania, these small countries that I think none of them have a population bigger than British Columbia, just right on Russia's doorstep in the eastern Baltic would feel the benefits of NATO membership for sure on that. I, I think the unfortunate thing here is that precisely because Putin is a fairly rational actor, the we want to talk about it and take a diplomatic tact is maybe not necessarily going to work because I think he's generally made the assessment that the costs of these military interventions and the 2014 annexation of Crimea being a pretty good example of that and the subsequent destabilizing insurgency that he's supported in eastern Ukraine has generally done well for him and that you're not likely to dissuade him just on a purely diplomatic approach. And I think you do actually have to raise the anticipated cost to Russia, not just um, economically, but military of, of an invasion. And that means Ukraine has to have more military capability than they do now. And that needs to come from support from countries that want to see Ukraine's territorial integrity maintained. And I think uh, Canada rightly falls in that category. I'm just going to agree to disagree. I just am on the like edge of why is NATO even still a thing? Because multilateral, we don't need a war. And I, I think, I'm just uh, frustrated. But I, I think this is a very good example of why NATO is still a thing. Oh, I get why rationally the countries that are part of it, especially the governments, are eager to continue to be part of it. But we could also reimagine a world where we are approaching these questions from governing structures that aren't inherently adversarial. Uh, but, that would be nice, but that you know, that in that utopia, you couldn't have a Putin in there, which is the uh, unfortunate reality we have to, to deal with. These realities, we if we are going to fight, we will need to build ships, and to build ships, apparently, we need influencers. 
what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Ottawa Citizen had a story that raised a few eyebrows. Apparently, Public Service and Procurement Canada is seeking social media influencers to influence Canadians around the uh, National Shipbuilding Program. <laughs> I don't know what to say about this story. It's so stupid. <sighs> We're just going to get like TikToks of people being like, hey, check out the Davy shipyards. We're totally not fucking up spending billions of dollars building a few more boats. <laughs> I don't understand it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we'll put the, the link the, in the show notes. But. It's bizarre. The, the, the problem with the national shipbuilding strategy is not the PR around it. It's the same procurement problems that have plagued this government and many governments before them. And sorting that out has been a perennial problem that nobody's really wanted to seriously tackle because it's one of those things that's going to be hard to do probably will upset a bunch of stakeholders with not a huge amount of uh, political upside. But yeah, we as a country absolutely need to get our act together on procuring stuff, um, ships, as well as many other things that we've struggled with. Ships, payroll software, pistols. There's just a long history of stuff the government's done a poor job procuring and no amount of TikTok is videos is going to change that. Well, and speaking of influencers, the other one in the news is Jugmeet Singh and his wife, Gurkaran Kaur Sidhu, who got a chair and posted it on Instagram. So Gurkaran could be, I think, fairly called an influencer. Like she runs a pop instagram channel and social media presence and so she gets that kind of life where sometimes brands approach and say hey would you feature this thing in your stuff we'll either give it to you for free or pay you for it and in this case monty design sent them a 1895 dollar rocking chair that they have shown off with their new adorable baby girl i think that's fine it's a little it's maybe questionable on her account because he is a politician and there is a like family connection there. But Jugmeet Singh posted on his account a picture of him holding the baby in this rocking chair and he tagged the company and this raised questions about is this like an attempt to influence a politician? And I think most people fairly go, no, I don't think Monty Design has political aspirations for the feder the leader of the fourth party in the parliament to do anything, but the ethics commissioner is now working with the NDP to declare this gift and Singh and his wife are going to pay back the chair and they've apologized for it. And this is dumb. So, so the gift rules exist for a reason. And yeah, it's, it's unlikely that uh, a chair company is trying to gain influence, particularly with someone with so little general influence on the political direction of the country as, like I said, the leader of the fourth place party in the country <sighs> nevertheless we are going to have rules they do need to be there in force so like it's not great but th this is also one of those things where uh, there's probably a situation the ethics code was never really considered i can't remember when the last time it had a significant update was but 
it was probably before social media influencer was a career path for people. And this is not the olden days where the spouse who was the politician is the sole breadwinner in a family. And how those interact is going to be something that probably does need to figure out. Because this probably is not going to be the last spouse of a politician who is a social media influencer. And I don't know, maybe walling that stuff off's different. Although I, well, and, the, and Sophie my other Gregoire question, Trudeau is arguably pretty popular on social media and has her own uh, too. platform there, but attempts to, you know, this was part of the we scandal was that Justin Trudeau's mother, Margaret had Trudeau had done, paid speaking gigs for we charity and had seemingly gotten some benefit from it so the question was we too cozy with the liberals and we didn't get i don't remember the final answer to that but i think we all agreed there was a lot of smoke there at least and so i think the other half of this is that this is weakness in the Singh brand is when he's too he's too social media and not enough substance to style not enough substance and this does play into that weakness of his brand so to say yeah he did not have to take the chair company in this but he- yeah that was definitely a mistake <laughs> it wouldn't be in a scandal then but we'll see how it goes forward but that's the ndp story of the week or 24 hours i think we'd even forgotten about it until i was just doing my final scan but finally, let's talk just briefly about a piece in the star, an interview with interim green leader, Mita Kuttner, who said to Althea Raj, the national columnist, that the, I don't actually think the last vote was legitimate. They said regarding the leadership race that Adam e. Paul won, that Kuttner was in and lost. So most of the interview is actually just about how Kuttner is trying to steer the party out of the chaos that it's been in, clear up some of the issues with it, really trying to find roles for leaders that have actual authority and points out many of the things that probably hung hamstrung Paul, like she couldn't do things that a normal leader would do because the Greens are excessively democratic at times. These are my words, not Kuttner's. Yeah, the trouble with trying to steer through that stuff is when you suddenly swerve right back into that same problem, like here. Like they, even the, if it, the comments might be true, but should not be said by the interim leader. No, it, it just invites further problems. And if you want to improve upon that, then that's good. But there are definitely ways to do it that doesn't make your party's internal problems the the national news story of the day on that and it divides the party and the, the way to do it is you have a review and if the review comes back and it says it wasn't legitimate you can say i accept the findings of the review and i will implement recommendations necessary to make sure future ones are clean and fair and don't comment about the legitimate don't use the words that it was illegitimate because it sounds bad bitter. because illegitimate elections are bad Usually. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. 
Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playghost. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playghost is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.